Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you and we do it from scratch. This season is all about the Fallout role-playing game, and if you're in need of a rule book, hit up your local game or bookstore, or check out the Modifius Entertainment website. That's M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. Okay, so before we dive into this week's build, I need to touch on a couple of questions I've gotten over the past couple of weeks. And for those who want to know why it's taken so long to get to them, I do have to note that I recorded multiple shows at the same time over the past few weeks. A lot of issues, not going to get into it, but we're all good. Anyway, this is the first chance I've had to get to answering these questions. So apologies overall, but let's do the important thing and answer your questions here. First question goes back a couple of weeks to when our group was meeting with Jesse Arnott as part of their information gathering meetings so that they could try to figure out who might be working with Longsworth against them. Now, I noted at the time that if your group had not killed Barnabas O'Reilly, this meeting would have gone differently, but several listeners wanted to know how that might go. Well, one thing to consider when you're working through this is really what the group's relationship with Barnabas O'Reilly is. I mean, if they have a neutral or a friendly relationship with him, he's going to pretty quickly let him know that he is not working with Longsworth. He's also going to let the group know that he's not interested in teaming up with anybody. He's got his own plans for Longsworth and he's not sharing them. Now, if the group and Barnabas have an antagonistic relationship, They're going to get that same information, but Barnabas is going to play with them for a little while and drag it out and you know where I'm going. And really, he just wants them out of his office, leave him alone, let him do his thing. And look, I realize that's not a ton of information, but you know what you're doing by now. You know how your group's going to react to things. You know how you've got things set up. Just take it and run with it. Uh, The other question comes directly from last week's episode, and I was asked why the synths checking out the Lent Brewery chose to run in a different direction from the building they needed to head to. Look, that's simple philosophy. If you want to keep someone away from your base of operations, the very last thing you want to do when you're running away is run straight to it. Now, There's always a good chance the group couldn't catch up with them or they couldn't shoot them down. So if the synths managed to get away, then all was good for them. Now, a lot of people pointed out, so did I for that matter, that, you know, it would be possible to take the head of a synth and hack it and figure out where it came from. But even after I did that, and when I got the question for it, I thought about it. The science plus intelligence check is going to have a five difficulty because it's going to be hard. We'd also expand the threshold for complications to 18 to 20. And a complication on the roll will cause the synth system to wipe before they can get everything downloaded. That would also be the same with a failure to successfully hack. It would just wipe the memory. They'd get one shot. So yeah, there is a chance the group could use a destroyed synth's head to figure out where they need to go, but it's not going to be easy. And we're not going to make it easy for them. We're going to make them earn it. Also, this is going to be the kind of hack that would require more gear than what the group is going to be carrying on them. So they're going to have to either go back to their own headquarters or back to Victor's office. And, you know, that's got its own issues. Always throw a combat in or something if you so choose. All right, those are the questions. I give you the answers. Let's recap last week's build and then we can get to building some new stuff. 
While Victor was continuing to work out who was plotting to have him killed, he sent the group to meet with Chip, who was presented as having been a reliable informant for him in the past. The group was provided with the chems they needed to pay Chip, and they headed for the old bus station. They eventually met Chip, though he was doing everything good to not be seen. He told the group that the group that hit Victor's warehouse had ghouls in it, and he believes they were feral ghouls. However, he himself had recently been approached by an individual looking for ghouls to do jobs, with the caveat being it had to look like a feral ghoul was responsible. While he didn't see the face of the person who approached him, he was able to report that the meeting he took was at an old Catholic church. The meeting was held in the confessional, but most of the other accoutrements of a church had been removed, and it was apparent that it was being used as a base of operations or an office. They were given the name of the church, and they headed that way. When they got there, they not only had to pick the lock on the door, but also take out an explosive rigged to it. They did so, made entry, and found themselves ambushed by feral ghouls and glowing ones. They dealt with them, got mad, thinking they'd been set up. Then they found the body of Chip, which didn't make sense until it occurred to them that this Chip didn't have a brain, which is an older method of retrieving everything you need to create a synth. At least a synth with a existent personality. They reported back to Victor, and he reported that Sylvia at the Twisted Tap had information for them. He decided they would stop in the next night due to the hour, and before they headed out, they dressed up and geared out. On the way, they ran into a bunch of super mutants along with a suicider. They dealt with that, barely, then headed to the Twisted Tap. They got to the tap, stayed about an hour, and left. Victor got the name of someone who might be able to assist them in figuring out whose synth these are, and the name is Marshall Malone. The group returned to the third base saloon, where Victor charged Bruno with finding out where they can find said Marshall Malone, and we ended the build right there. So let's pick up right where we left off last time, and that's with the group in Victor's office post-Twisted Tap Trip, with Bruno checking through Victor's various information sources concerning Marshall Malone, and with Melanie Zombrowski and Jesse Arnott having been spoken with and covered, Victor's kind of at a loss. He doesn't want to get near iRobotics just yet, since he'd like to hear from Marshall Malone before taking them on. He doesn't want to go back to Melanie Zombrowski or Jesse Arnott, since their positions on the situation are pretty clear. So... He's not sure what to have the group do at this point. Since that's the case, he suggests the group head out and do whatever they want to do for a couple of days while he works on digging up info. So what does that mean for our group? Well, I do have a job for them, but let's start with going back over the various jobs we've posted on the job board over the course of the campaign to this point. If there are any jobs the group didn't take, organize them and put them back on the board if you're interested in doing that. In most cases, they are going to require a bit of work since we wrote a lot of them back when the group was a much lower level, but really that just entails either adding a few new challenges or increasing the opponents to something that's more level appropriate. Now, in the case of my group, they've done all the jobs they intend to do, so we're really going to need this new one. Before that, though, I think it's more than fair to allow the group a day off, if you'd like. In the case of my group, they've got a base of operations they've built, so having some time to use their various modification tables or get some rest, well, that's something they could really use. If your group doesn't have something like this, then feel free to jump right into the job.
Where they are when they get the offer depends on what we just discussed. If they're going to get it immediately, it'll happen shortly after they leave the third base saloon. If they're going to their headquarters, it'll happen there. I'm just going to present it as I give it to my group. After a day's rest, you're approached by a Mr. Handy robot. This Mr. Handy doesn't look like most of the Mr. Handys you've dealt with to this point. It is immaculately clean and maintained. All of the panels and appendages are complete and matched, and it moves as it did when it came off the assembly line. He waits for someone to introduce themselves, and when they do, he introduces himself. And note, his speech is perfect, and it's that of a butler, which is how it was programmed. I mean, think... Codsworth from the Fallout 4 video game. Greetings to you, sir. My name is Riggins, and I represent the Malloy family. Mr. Malloy is in need of a group to perform a service for him, and he has been made aware of your qualifications for the task at hand. He has tasked me with extending an invitation to you to meet with him at the family home, and he asks that I inform you he will pay each of you 50 bottle caps to travel to the house with me and take the meeting. Okay, I'm not trying to do that voice anymore. It hurts too much. He doesn't have any information about what the job is, but he's also programmed to please, so he can tell them that Mr. Malloy has been exceptionally distressed since Ms. Malloy has come up missing. If I were to attempt to ascertain what Mr. Malloy intends to hire you to do, I would suggest it would be to find her and return her to the family home. He doesn't know more than that, but he can and will clarify that Ms. Malloy is the daughter of Mr. Malloy, and she is the youngest of his four children. And as much as he likes to please, he's also very aware there's only so much he should be sharing without Mr. Malloy's permission. When the group agrees to the meeting, and they will, Riggins will wait for them to gather their gear and follow him to the house. For those who've been paying attention to me as we've been building, I'm using actual areas in the St. Louis metropolitan area, and for this part of the adventure, we'll be heading for the area of Maplewood Richmond Heights. For the record, it's about eight miles from Diamond Pass to Maplewood, so it's going to be about two and a half hours to walk there. You can feel free to shorten this time if you'd like, since this is a game and not reality. And of course, they're not going to get there without some action. There will be two encounters with groups of the sense they've been dealing with so many times lately. One less than the total number of group members, keeping Riggins out of the equation since he's not a fighter. Uh, insofar as timing, make one encounter about 20 minutes into the trip and the other about an hour or so away from that. These should be easy enough for the group to succeed with, but challenging enough to have them burn through a few of their resources. The final encounter is going to be an interesting one. Just as they cross the St. Louis city line and head into Maplewood, they run into a group of mercenaries. There's one for each member of the group, and if anybody tries to speak with them, they'll mention that they've got a contract for the group, so there's no talking their way out of it. Again, the group is a higher level than the mercenaries, so they should be able to win the fight without too much trouble. The point is to wear them down a bit and to bleed some of their resources out. And yes, for the record, that is three encounters during one trip. I know it's something we don't typically do. Reasons, folks. Reasons. We'll get into it. About 20 minutes after that final encounter, they come across a huge building at the top of a hill along the old Manchester Road. In our time, it's a grocery store. However, in our game, it's been completely restored, but modified to be a massive mansion. 
What was once the parking lot has been restored to the grass and trees it had been long before it was turned into commercial property. Of course, the grass is mostly dead, but there is a lot of it. And the trees look pretty gnarly, but again, that's what one would expect with the water still being toxic. Regardless, there's no doubt in the minds of the group members that Mr. Malloy has some serious money, so whatever he's about to ask the group to do is probably going to come with some serious caps. Of course, if he's going to try to be cheap, the group will probably be determined to get what they think the job's worth. Now, there's also been some serious money spent on security. The group counts at least a half a dozen sentry bots rolling around the property. And if you're curious as to how tough these are and haven't played Fallout 4, check out pages 364 and 365 to see what we're dealing with. Those are supplemented with protectrons and laser turrets that are spaced out evenly all over the grounds. So, whatever it is that Mr. Malloy is into, he's obviously a pretty big player. Riggins escorts the group across the front yard, up the front stairs, and past the handy at the door. He glides down the hallway and takes them to a door towards the rear of the building. He stops them there and informs them that they're going into Mr. Malloy's office to meet him and discuss the offer. He knocks, opens the door, and announces the group. Mr. Malloy rises from his massive oak desk to greet the group. And he's about as massive as the desk. Standing just shy of seven feet tall, weighing in at well over 350 pounds, Malloy is exceptionally well-dressed in a freshly pressed black three-piece suit. His red paisley tie is as neat as the suit, and the gold chain of his pocket watch gleams in the light. His hair appears to have gone gray, but since he's got it buzzed into a military-style cut, it's kind of difficult to tell. He requests that Riggins make sure there are enough chairs for everyone in the group and requests that refreshments be brought in for all. And he will make it a point to request items specifically for any ghouls in the group, mostly dirty water, since he knows they can not only drink it, but heal from drinking it. He waits for the chairs and refreshments to be brought in. And once Riggins and another handy have left, he introduces himself and gets down to business. Now, I don't have a specific voice in mind for him, but he does speak like somebody who's used to being in charge of things and used to getting what he wants. My name's Tucker Malloy. Thank you for accepting my invitation. He grabs a leather bag sitting on his desk and tosses it at whichever group member is closest to him. That should cover the promised payment for your trip. For the record, there's enough there to cover 50 caps per group member, plus an extra 100 total. Not an extra 100 per player, but 100 total. Now, I don't know how much Riggins might have told you, but I need a group to conduct a rescue mission. My daughter Elizabeth went to a party two nights ago and never returned. He holds out a hand to stop the group from making the maybe she's staying with someone comment. Elizabeth always either comes home or makes sure we get a message telling us that she'll be staying somewhere else. She's never failed to get us a message, even if she has to pay a bum to bring it to us. He doesn't have a lot to go on, but he does share what he has. The party was for some friends of hers, and they had it at Memorial Hall. Don't let the name fool you. It's a popular night spot for the young people around here, and they've got a big hall that's used for parties and such. What happened to her after the party is something I don't know about, so if I were you, I'd start there. Now, you and I both know our groups. They're going to have a few questions, so let's get into the answers. If asked about why Malloy needs them to do the job, he'll grin before he answers. While I have a staff of intelligent and resourceful individuals, none of them are as good at this sort of task. That's why I checked around to find a team like yourselves. 
Let's cover the follow-up question, which is how he found out about the group. He smiles again. I have associates in many different areas of business, and you've managed to build up a bit of a reputation as a group that can get things done. If pressed, he will give a bit more. Sylvia knows a lot of people that run in my circles, and when I mentioned my predicament, she immediately suggested you. She did note that you tend to work solely for Victor, but I found out through my due diligence that you've been known to take the occasional side job. So, once you checked out, I decided to pursue you to do this job for me. There's one more big question the group will probably have, other than the money, and it's what exactly Malloy does. He'll grin again, and his answer will be some variation on this. Well, the fact that I know Sylvia should be a bit of a hint about what I do. That being said, I pride myself on being able to acquire that which cannot be acquired. But what I do isn't germane to our negotiations, only that I am a man of my word and will honor the agreement that we make. That's going to lead us to the negotiation. He will offer 2,500 caps for the successful return of his daughter. Now, we both know there's going to be negotiating going on, so make sure you do it. Malloy's number is 17, so in the opposed checks, that's what we're working with. He's also got speech and barter as tag skills, so if he rolls six or less on his rolls, he gets multiple successes. And for the record, he won't drop the number, regardless of the results. Once the deal is made, Malloy will shake the group's hands and lets them know that Riggins will be available at all hours of the day and night, and he can and will alert Mr. Malloy when the group has fulfilled the job. Oh, and one more note, he will not be paying out any caps in advance, full payment upon completion. Yeah, that's going to tick my group off too, but that's what we're going to do. All right, so let's get to it. The group has a location to start with, and it's Memorial Hall. Now, in our time, it's a high school, specifically the Maplewood Richmond Heights High School. It's a pretty big building in reality, but some of that building wasn't rebuilt after the bombs dropped. That being said, what was rebuilt was significant, allowing for a large bar slash club, plus a large area reserved for parties and other private affairs. It'll take the group around 20 minutes or so to get there, and along the walk they realize Maplewood was really well rebuilt as they see far fewer abandoned and destroyed buildings along Manchester than what they've seen in other areas. They also notice that there's a lot of security around in the person of Protectrons and Sentry bots. That will, or at least should, lead the group to guess that either Malloy is way richer than they thought, or there's a lot of money in this area, or maybe it's both. When they get to Memorial Hall, they note that the club is in full force, which is interesting considering that by this point it's still morning. There's a Mr. Handy at the door greeting those who are entering, and the people going in are various ages. So despite what Mr. Malloy said, it's not just a club for the young. The Handy will stop them at the door since it's pretty obvious they don't look anything like those who are heading in and out, and obviously the weapons are going to be part of that reason. When they mention why they're there, and they should do that pretty quickly, the Handy will note that, Ah, yes, I remember Ms. Malloy coming in that night. She was alone when she came in, and she was here for Ms. Sanchez's party. It does occur to me that I did not see her leave, but sometimes patrons use the emergency exits to leave so that we don't see whom they're leaving with. He does note that there were two handies working the party room that night, and they are here, and he offers to bring them outside so the group can speak with them. And, yeah, he refuses to allow the group into the club. He's not being a jerk, he just matter-of-factly tells them that they're not the club's type. 
He alerts another handy that's just inside the door, and a few minutes later, two more handies come out. They introduce themselves as Ramon and Terrence, and they request that the group step off to the side of the building so they can speak privately. The two handies are painted to look like they're wearing tuxedos, and the paint is perfect. Looks like it might have actually been powder-coated, for those who understand that process. We're not going to try to play out the entire conversation, but here are the basics. These handies are going to be real reluctant to tell too much about the party. I mean, after all, those with money get real serious about their movements not being reported to everyone. However, the disappearance of Elizabeth Malloy is something that concerns them, so they're willing to tell what they know. She was one of the last people to enter the party, and she spent the evening drinking and dancing. She was with her usual group of friends, which included Rebecca Sanchez, who was the hostess. Neither of them noticed anything unusual about her behaviors during the party, and since she only accepted drinks from the robot working the bar, they don't believe that anyone could have slipped her a mickey. As it feels like the conversation is starting to wrap up, Ramon does have a nugget they can work with. Now that we're talking about it, I noted that Ms. Malloy exited through the South Emergency Exit and Mr. Church exited through that same exit about five minutes later. Now, it's notable to him because nobody else went through those exits for at least 20 minutes before or 20 minutes after the two of them did. He didn't think anything of it at the time, and it wasn't until they started talking about it that it occurred to him that this might be connected. It'll take a charisma plus speech difficulty three check to get him to offer up Mr. Church's full name, which is Yarick. Neither Handy knows much more about him, but they both know he's always dressed well when he's in the club, and he spends well. And it will also occur to both Handys that they haven't seen Mr. Church since that night, which is also exceptionally unusual since he's in the club almost every night. That's all they've got, and while it's not much, they at least have a name they can work with. If they decide to head to the door and speak with the doorman, he can't add anything more to what the group already knows. He will suggest that if they're trying to figure out where Ms. Malloy went, one of the sentry bots on patrol might know. And yes, I understand the group might decide to try this first. If they do, great. We're just including the club part to give a name to the male involved in this, and that comes into play more a little later on. It obviously won't take much to find a sentry bot near the club, and since they don't need rest, the same dozen sentry bots patrol the immediate area around the club every single day. Doesn't matter which one they approach, so we'll just build out one encounter for one robot. And I'm not going to worry about what the group says. I'm just going to cover the sentry bot's end of the conversation. Greeting, citizen. I am SentryBot 23. How may I assist you today? Ah, Elizabeth Malloy, 24 years old, 5 foot, 4 inches tall, weighs 104 pounds, red hair, usually worn long and curled, always well-dressed, last seen exiting Memorial Hall at 0313 hours two days ago, headed east. Yarrick Church, 30 years old, 5 foot, 9 and 1 half inches tall, weighs 195 pounds, bald head, red-colored goatee, always dressed in a black suit with a blue tie. Last seen exiting Memorial Hall at 03-1800 hours two days ago. Headed east. There is an old-time diner three and one-half blocks east of Memorial Hall on the south side of the road that many visitors to Memorial Hall dine at after their evening. Century Bot 5 watches that building. They should be able to provide you with more information. Now, in case you didn't pick up on this, the Century Bots are going to be exceptionally to the point. Not rude, but direct. So just keep that in mind and present as you will. 
Now, before we head on, I do realize we're running this particular job on the rails. I apologize for that, but there's not really a way to get where I want to get with this piece without doing it this way. I promise you that if you and your group stays patient, that patience will be rewarded. I just ask that you trust me. Okay, so we're using what is in our time a steak and shake restaurant for our diner. In the fallout world, it really does look like an old school diner. Maybe a combination of a greasy spoon, as we Americans call it, and Arnold's from Happy Days. YouTube that if you're curious as to what I'm referring to. When the group gets there, there's a sentry bot sitting just outside the restaurant. Again, I'm only going to give his side of the conversation. Greeting, citizen. I am Sentry Bot 5. How may I be of assistance today? Elizabeth Malloy entered the diner at 0320 hours two days ago. Time of exit unknown. I was performing my duties of patrolling the exterior and am not aware of precisely what time she exited the premises, but she was not inside as of 0445 hours when I was called inside to deal with a disturbance. Yarrick Church. He did not enter the diner on the evening in question was observed walking east past my position at 03.23 hours two days ago, was observed standing outside the building two blocks south of here at 03.35 hours two days ago, has not been observed walking past this location since. The building two blocks south of this location in our time is actually a house. We're going to make an artistic change here and turn it into a warehouse. It's not a large one, maybe the size of a two-bay auto shop. Of course, the group might choose to head into the diner to ask the staff questions, but they're all human and nobody remembers seeing Elizabeth Malloy leaving the diner on the night in question. So let's just get back to the clue they've got. One thing that should stand out to the group is that this warehouse appears to have no security on it. No turrets, no protections, no sentry bots, no human security, nothing. It's got two doors, a 10 foot wide sliding door in the front and a standard door on the eastern side. Now, the group will probably be a bit on edge thanks to the lack of security, and so they should be smart enough to check the doors. Perception plus explosive difficulty three to figure out the door is rigged nine ways from Sunday, and that's both doors. Another perception plus explosives difficulty three to disarm the various traps. Then it's going to take perception plus lockpick difficulty two to get the lockpicked and get them inside. And when they get inside, they enter a horror scene. There's a man stretched out on the floor of the warehouse. Each arm and leg is chained and the chains are pulled tight. He's as naked as the day he was born and he's been cut from throat to crotch with various organs having been pulled out. And I think I'll stop that there because you know me, I try to keep this family friendly. As they check out the body, they notice the torn up black suit and black tie that were just tossed to the side. And as they're checking all this out, they hear crying from behind a stack of boxes on the other side of the warehouse. It's very soft and it sounds tired. Heading that way, they can pull the boxes and they'll notice the slight body of a redheaded female. She appears to be unharmed, though she's been chained to a pipe on the wall. She's dirty, obviously dehydrated, and desperately in need of sleep. And as they go to talk to her, she can't say much more than, Denman, Dad... Why? Now, I know my group, especially Jim, they're going to have figured from the beginning that Mr. Malloy will have something to do with this. So they're going to scoop up the girl and probably drop her somewhere safe while they check out Malloy. Or they'll just take her with them back to the house and play like everything's okay. We're going to play out the second one, and I'll leave the first one for you to work out the way you see fit. 
They get back to the Malloy compound and the group has a clear path to the door. Riggins is there when they arrive and he requests that they take Elizabeth up to her room while he engages his medical protocols to take care of her. He notes that Mr. Malloy is in his office so they can go see him. As they enter the office, Malloy is sitting behind his desk and he just lit a huge cigar. He welcomes the group in and tosses another bag onto his desk, noting it's the payment for a job well done. Now, let's get into the meat of this. When they ask him what he really knew of his daughter's abduction, have whoever is asking the question make a charisma plus speech check difficulty five. A success gives him this answer. We needed to figure out what we were up against, so he decided to put together a little test. We needed a victim, and Elizabeth's been nothing but a pain in my ass her entire life, so there you go. He will say nothing more about that, but the group will hear the footsteps, well, more like clank steps, of Protectron robots coming into the office behind them. Malloy will note that they're only here to protect me should you decide to do something silly. If they ask about Denman, Malloy will smile at them. You know, he's been very upset with you for a long time. You've apparently ruined several of his business arrangements, and he's trying to figure out how he can best deal with you. Malloy won't say anything else. He will allow the group to leave without issue, so long as they leave. If they decide to open fire, Malloy will drop behind the desk, the Protectrons will fire, and the sentry bots will be there in a round. It'll be a half a dozen Protectrons in the first round, and the sentry bots will blow through the walls to get in, and there's going to be a half a dozen of those. This is a fight the group cannot win. They might be dumb enough to try, but they cannot win. It'd be a smart move here to leave and just work out what's going on. So, they can head back towards their base of operations. They will get back there without issue, and at some point we know they're going to check in with Victor. When they tell him about who they did a job for, his eyes will get wide. Wait, you did a job for Tucker Malloy? He will explain that Tucker Malloy has been one of Victor's worst enemies for a very long time. Some of his information digging after the kidnapping of Corinth and Igmon hinted that Malloy might have been responsible. Malloy specializes in murder for hire, and there's nobody he won't either kill himself or have killed. And yeah, he didn't need the group to do that job. Victor will make it clear he believes Malloy hired the group in order to test some of their abilities. However, he also wonders if it wasn't also an attempt on his part to try to frame them in Yarrick Church's death. Either way, the group has another target on their backs, and that means they need to get some issues solved quickly. The Denman mentioned in this case, in his opinion, has to be Jackson Denman. The group's aware of him, but Victor knows him as the man to see if you need to buy chemicals in bulk. He will specifically comment that if Jackson Denman and Tucker Malloy are working together, we are in serious trouble. He's glad the group got out without too many issues, though he'll also note that the mercenaries they encountered on the way to the Malloy residence were probably Malloy hitmen, since it would give him an opportunity to test their abilities in an indirect manner. He urges the group to lay low for another day or so, and he'll get the lay of the land before deciding what their next move needs to be. And this is where we'll stop this week's build. Next week, we're going to get back on the trail. Will we chase down Jackson Denman and Tucker Malloy, or will we get deeper into the synth deal? I don't know. I've got a week to think about it. We'll see. 
In the meanwhile, you can check out our other podcast, Role Playing History. This week, we're covering the games Arduin and Corporation. Role Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are used on this show for entertainment purposes only. For more Fallout game materials or to check out all of the fine products they produce, check out the Modifius website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. The music we use on this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. On Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube and Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. You can email us badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online the website is badgmproductions.com. Net. Next week, we pull back yet another layer of that onion surrounding the issues our group has gotten themselves into. You're just going to have to check it out to see where we go. That's next week. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.